Uh, happy post-Easter, Calvin. How are you doing? Happy Egg Day. Uh, I'm doing okay. It was a very quiet one because of the social distancing going on. Yeah, uh, I don't know for you, but Easter's not usually a big holiday for me to begin with. Like, especially since I'm not a child anymore. Uh, even, even as a kid, like, I don't know, going to church was, was always just something of a bother anyway. Now that I'm an adult, I don't do it. You know, I haven't done it for years, and, you know, and with the coronavirus and everything... Now I really have no reason to do it, so it was just uh, Sunday. It was to me. fun. It was fun with my daughter, like uh, putting out yeah. a carrot and like the whole, you know, the whole waking up in the morning and running out and finding the basket. But then it's a, then what? Then it's a Sunday morning where we have hot cross buns and you know. Yeah, my mom no still from others. My mom still sends me Easter stuff, like you know, she didn't send me like a whole basket this year, but she sent me some mm. money to go get eggs and stuff, which I didn't, but. It was yeah. it was a nice thought, but usually we, we do, and those are always fun memories. Still, if you got a kid, then Easter's still a fun holiday. It's, it's like Halloween, but not as fun. Yeah. By the way, no eggs at stores anywhere. I I looked for eggs. I had to order a huge batch online to even have real eggs. I don't remember the last time we used real eggs, or I guess we we still paint some. But usually, you get the plastic ones that you hide around the yard and stuff, and you put. Mm-hmm. Like candy or whatever. What would you put in for for your daughter? Do you usually have certain things? She doesn't like candy though, right? She likes uh, some candy. She likes chocolate especially. So uh, little bits of chocolate of uh, multiple kinds. Uh, which brings me to a larger point and a bigger issue than all of Easter, which is uh, that white chocolate is far superior than all the other chocolates. You know, Calvin, that's a very bold and controversial stance to take, but I'm going to support you on it because I love white chocolate, and uh, this is probably where we lose half of our listeners to begin with here because that that is not a popular take, <laughs> despite it being the correct one. I think uh, the only reason it isn't the correct take is the lack of cocoa, but I don't like cocoa, so I don't yeah. like the part that makes chocolate chocolate. It's not It's not really chocolate, which is what every white chocolate naysayer will tell you but it doesn't matter because it it tastes better we like it more and i don't really pair chocolate with anything (laughs) if i were to then i would do it with fruit and white chocolate is the most adaptable and it's the most correct because it goes with almost every kind of fruit that you'd actually want to eat yeah i don't know i just i like it but it's also just i'm not a huge sweet person to begin with so it's it's nice because of like the 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 sweetness of it. I find it's not like too indulgent like milk chocolate is, and I find dark... it very indulgent. <laughs> oh yeah, it's still it's, it's still indulgent, right? It, it is, but I don't I don't find it rich like like milk chocolate is. I don't know. There's something about yeah. milk chocolate that's just a little like oh this is this is too much for me. You know, I'm 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 indulging too much here. Whereas white chocolate feels like I don't know if it's actually less rich or not, but I don't have a great palate. If that's not clear, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, white chocolate's just, you know, it's all cocoa butter, so it's very buttery, and it, it is richer, but it, it's not, it doesn't have, like, that cocoa part that I think makes chocolate feel like it's an overindulgence. Mm-hmm. Oh, as opposed to, like, well, there's also uh, the alternative of dark chocolate, which is much more bitter. Yeah, which I could go for. I, I think it, at its best, dark chocolate is most useful, but uh, I don't think it has anything on white in general. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that this caused... You know, it's going to cause a bit of controversy, of course, because n- nobody generally agrees with this. But luckily, like uh, like The Shining, is this is one controversial take I can agree with you on mostly here. Uh, hopefully, I mean, we'll- 
I feel bad that we lost three staff members over this over Easter break, which was really hard for me to deal with. Well, I, well, it's funny because both of those stances are something that that particularly upset Graham on the site, and and I. I I remembered because you, you you retweeted something on the site account with the shining, and and I was kind of just like, oh, there's there's Calvin making those bold stances <laughs> for the entire site again. <laughs> I think I thought I was on personal. I thought I was on my main, and I was liking a bunch of content that was like a yeah, shining's just overrated. I, I didn't I, know I was on our uh, you know universal uh, site account. I would have said something, but we did a whole podcast, uh, like, openly, you know, condemning The Shining with Tyler, like, like barely fighting against us there. So I was like, eh, it's, it's, it's in line with our with our thoughts, I guess, and the consensus. It's all right to go, but it, it definitely is something that would attract negative attention. Uh, j- just don't tweet about white chocolate, I guess, is the next thing. <laughs> no. I can't start tweeting my white chocolate supremacy, or it's going to get really messy. And white chocolate supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> I I do think it's just better. Like I, then I had way too much of it, though. I sat there and I had a whole bunny made of white chocolate. Ezra kept asking for pieces, and man, it it went to my head. So there is too much white chocolate. Yeah, well, we have to stand up for for the white chocolate here. You know, there's a white chocolate genocide going on with all these, these dark chocolate supporters <laughs> trying to snuff us out. We're in the minority now. The white is is the minority, I guess. <laughs> white chocolate matters is, I think, the, <laughs> has become the slogan for the podcast. We should stop before we cancel ourselves. But, but before we get into way way too uh, controversial <laughs> parallels, yeah, maybe so. Uh, well, what else did you do for Easter then? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't want to get too pithy now, um, but uh, I we did almost nothing because it was uh, quarantine, so we stayed inside and we watched streaming, which I think is what everyone's doing now. Um, did you watch anything uh, relatively linked to Easter, I guess? I did. Uh, I, I watched a couple things, though. I had to uh, rent them. When, uh, there was a... Uh, we watched the Charlie da- Brown Easter special, which is a favorite of my fiancé's, okay. uh, which... I had never seen before, despite being together no. for so long, because nobody so knows I'm, about I'm a big, them. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big Charlie Browner. I like the big, big pumpkin, and yeah. the, the Christmas tree one is pretty good. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about them both during those holidays, but nobody talks about like the other ones, like the, the Arbor Day special and <laughs> the Easter one. I wonder why. <laughs> well, because they're not as memorable. Uh but the Easter one, I, I enjoyed it fairly. Like, it wasn't as iconic or, like, you know, uh, memorable in certain sections. But there's, like, a whole subplot with uh, Peppermint Patty and such, and they're, they're dying eggs in the whole bit. Uh, and then there's a bit with Snoopy and Woodstock. It's got a little bit more focus there. Like, like Snoopy's trying to get a new house, like a little birdhouse for Snoopy, or for Woodstock throughout. Uh, peppermint Patties are acceptable... If they have, well, they have the white insides, so they have they have it where it counts. <laughs> uh, and then there's also, um, uh, what else? Is there? Oh yeah, that, like one of my bigger beefs, I guess, with it is that they they rehash the great pumpkin bit, but now it's what? the the Easter beagle. <laughs> like they're okay. like Linus is talking about how the Easter beagle is going to come and do all the colored eggs and stuff, and you just have to wait. And he tricks Sally into staying up again for it and they even acknowledge it they're like oh we've been over this before with the great pumpkin it's like no no it's it's for real this time <laughs> we made this story before i like when uh, people that are making shows really admit that they've been here before i, I was i was I, I leaned over one point i'm like you know just because they acknowledge that they're rehashing it doesn't make it okay <laughs> yeah 
I the Great Pumpkin's one of my uh, seasonal comfort foods, like a uh, comfort movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I I could watch that every year, and I I feel happy. Yeah, so I, I give a stamp of approval to it's the Easter Beagle, Charlie Brown, but it's it's definitely not as classic as Christmas, Thanksgiving, or the Great Pumpkin. Well, you uh, know the problem with Easter, it's we have such a space between holidays, and that it's kind of a nothing holiday. There's not enough event to it, like. We need to move Thanksgiving up into the middle of the spring because we need more uh, family gathering times. Uh, there's like six months until like Fourth of July. It's or seven too, months. It's too bad the Pilgrims didn't discover America in the spring. That would have been super nice. Those bastards. Um, for my <laughs> streaming, speaking of Pilgrim-ish things, I I watched uh, Vikings, which is a lot of raiding new territories and exploring new lands. Uh, I'm completely hooked on Vikings, so I guess I'm going to keep checking back on the show, but I watched all of season one yesterday, and I'm totally hooked. At first, I thought you meant the uh, the 1958 film with uh, Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis. <laughs> no? <laughs> no? You should check it out. It's it's a it's a bit of fun. Definitely very, very Norse. It's kind of like an action-y adventure film, and they pit the two against each other. It's very, like, uh, it's like a, a precursor to Spartacus in lots of ways. Okay. So I think that's interesting, and Ernest Borgnine and Janet Lee are in it too. If you like Viking stuff, which I know you do, I think it's fun. Um, yeah, I'm very happy with this show. Um, the guy who plays Ragnar, he, he looks so pretty. He's like a, he's just like a model. So sometimes he like breaks out of being a Viking and just looks like he's like posing for a photo shoot. But uh, otherwise, it's very gritty, and um, it was History Channel's first uh, scripted drama. So. Getting this from history is really exceptional. I'm so hooked in that I, I want to do a big thing for the site for it before the sixth season. And uh, um, I have a lot left to go. I know two of the seasons have like 20 episode runs, so I'm really excited. There's a lot out there. And uh, it's fun seeing like the lands of uh, Denmark, even though it's like shot in Ireland and uh, the parts of England, um, how they're having like theistic battles between uh, Christianity and the Vikings. Um it was weird watching someone just getting uh, crucified on Easter Day, but uh, there there are interesting parallels to religious battles and um, uh, kind of the Christians, the English, uh, kind of expanding their own laws to become more inclusive of women because uh, the Vikings are very mean to people that aren't them, but uh, inside their systems, it's equal rights for women and men. So I think it's really powerful and timely somehow, but it's mm-hmm. also, you know, way back in like the... 1790s or, or uh, 790s 790s i can't yeah, somewhere I can't around remember that. for you know for us americans history starts in the 1700s so we don't pay attention much beyond that i think that's why i just threw it on but yeah seven 700 something mm-hmm. uh, so, um, so i did have a uh, one more easter thing that i streamed in the evening you know i came down i was, I was thinking about lost things because of course it's more it's, it's a religious holiday and you know i saw people were talking about watching like a jesus christ superstar and stuff and you know you got your 10 commandments and greatest story ever told uh, lots of options out there for religious stuff but but my religious choice was was the, the from the temple of david so to speak and then i watched uh, a new i think annual classic which is uh the Fred Astaire Easter Parade with Judy Garland. That's interesting to have uh, Judy Garland, and I, I, it looks like an interesting picture. Oh, I don't know much about it. It's a lot of fun. I caught it for the first time last year when Criterion had their block of MGM musicals, and when I watched it, I'm like, "Yep, this is this is tradition now. I'm going to watch this every Easter because it's a it's a wonderfully fun, big uh, budgeted, beautiful 
musical set around the holiday with Irving Berlin songs that are all really wonderful. It's got a nice uh, through-line story, good romance element, and the songs are really like back-to-back bangers. And it's just a lot of fun, and one of the higher-quality Astaire films that I watched in my giant binging of them. <laughs> Astaire musicals are uh, these dance comedies are very funny because he gets um, these storylines where something happens about the dance like uh the the theme of this movie seems to be or the storyline seems to be that he's getting like a dance partner right right he implements it into the story whereas it would just be like a background dance number for another thing it becomes the story like the the actual subtext of the thing too yeah it's it's a different kind of character turn for him he's much more of a jerk in this film where usually he's kind of the romantic quarter like that's some of the roles he takes in these uh older turns that he has here he's starting to show his age a bit more in easter parade and so he's definitely more like a like a brutish kind of musical director and he's you know kind of striking out after his uh longtime partner leaves him to be a big zigfield girl star he's like i'm just gonna go take one of those showgirls and make her into a big star <laughs> and he picks judy garland out of a lineup at a bar and uh okay. you know he teaches her to be fantastic dancer and she's of course really great in the film that that's the risk you take with some steer films as well is that he's usually gonna overshadow some of the lesser star you know co-stars he has or whatnot but of course garland almost outshines him the whole time i'm very interested in that about having garland in it and um I, how does she do she does phenomenally and of course her her vocals are brilliant and she's a very funny actress throughout she really uh punches up the comedy uh throughout the whole film and again really goes toe-to-toe in the sequences with a stare she has great solo moments as well uh it was actually it was a first a vehicle for her and gene kelly and Astaire was retired at the time but this was his big comeback film because gene kelly broke his ankle during uh like pre-production and so he had to he stepped in to, to save the film it would be the only one that they did together right that, yep they actually special. this was such a success together that they were teamed to do they, they were set to turn around and do another project right after called the barclays of broadway but uh, Judy Garland, of course, had you know her, her drug problems and such and had to drop out. And so Ginger Rogers stepped in and they made uh, her and there made their last film together after 10 years at MGM with their that final finalizing one, which is a really great one as well, I recommend. I mean, it's probably good that that happened to put a cap on that at least other, rather than like drugged up Garland that are, you know, maybe not her best. Yeah, well, of course, she was still doing great at the time, but, you know, just a very tumultuous working relationship. But she it doesn't show in Easter Parade at all. She's phenomenal in, like, like most things she's in. Um, so, otherwise on streaming, I guess this is... Uh, <laughs> I, I've been trying to get around to this for a while, but I wanted to wait till we had all the information. So, Tiger King is already the most popular documentary and most viewed documentary ever made. Oh, that's depressing (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how to feel about that because it's such i mean it's such trash like the product itself isn't actually trash it's uh, very it's about trash is the idea right it's like this this yeah like you know southern you know like mid-south uh you know white trash you know uh animal exploitation people and it seems from from my understanding of the reception that it's very glorifying of that uh intentionally or unintentionally mm-hmm. it it just seems like the zeitgeist really took off with it and uh latched on to the worst aspects as such a fan of documentaries it's such a huge disappointment to have this become the the biggest one and this to become what people want to make now right i mean 
there there are so many better ones out there and so many people doing good work recently that just like this Netflix special that's very I'd say it's sensationalized if not glorifying it it allows them to play into their characters and it never cuts when <laughs> when you know they're doing something that uh, probably you don't need for like the format of a documentary I mean, they're doing uh, a lot of dumb stuff uh, I mean you wouldn't believe the stuff that you don't even think about like a like interviewing like a hitman while he's like sitting in the bath or a guy driving up with a skeleton in his car you just don't think about these things because the batshit insanity of everything around them is so amplified like a, a guy shooting himself in the head i mean there's so much bullshit going on and so much animal abuse it's a it's kind of a disgusting product or at least uh the people in it are mm-hmm. um on Easter, we got the final episode, which is just uh, Joel McHale. I always liked uh, Joel McHale for community, and he was a UW football player out here, so a local guy, which I really appreciate him for. He also had a, a stint hosting a, a, a web show uh, called The Soup, which was fun. I remember watching mm-hmm. a lot. It was kind of like a clip show of internet stuff that was fun. But, of course, community is kind of his like shining star, and uh, us big fans of that really loved that, that run that it had. It's sad to see it end in, in such a unfortunate way. Yeah, um, it it makes sense coming from like his soup background that he would be on this like the biggest meme show there has ever been, right? Like mm-hmm. a, uh, coming in here and he interviews each of the guy. I thought he did a really good job. I thought he was very sensitive. Uh, they misgender one of the staff members the whole time, so I'm glad that uh, Mikhail could come in and correct that because I think it was the only time they were ever properly gendered. Um, there's a it, it's interesting. It's a lot less uh, sensational than the show is. Uh, I think they learned something from the feedback, and they're like, let's not make another episode like that. Let's make something that's good-minded and good PR and uh, uh, closes it off in a good way. So uh, at least they earned that. But I don't think uh, people that complain about the show are going to watch this episode because it's, you know, it's not that uh, thing that they complain about that they actually really want to watch. Right, well, and that's the problem with this, is that as much as we want to sit here and talk about how bad and, like, like glorifying it is of this, that's what people are wanting, that's what they're latching onto, that's why everyone's flocking to see this show, because it's sensationalist and it's exploitative, and it's it's sad to see that that's still what resonates most with people. But it's great, too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating entertainment, and I don't think we meant to. I think we watched it all in a day and a half, and... Um, right. We, well, we had no plan to do that. It's like it's like passing by and, and rubbernecking at a car wreck, and you can't help but yeah. you know just be fascinated by it. And the, the real question is the, the responsibility and the handling of it by the filmmakers, because you can have something that I think is inherently terrible and exploitative and trashy that's fascinating, as long as it's framed in the right way, and you, you just got to hope that the filmmakers are, are leaving you with the impression that these are terrible people doing abusive things and and i don't know just based off the reception i'm seeing if that's if they were successful in that there's it's like rubbernecking at a car wreck if it if you stop for seven hours get out of the car and hang out with a guy who um who plied people into like his weird cult community with meth and turned straight men gay to become his husbands and uh abused animals it's such a strange thing um I, uh, there's also the other thing where there's this Carol Baskins character who's equally bad, but she poses as an animal advocate, even though she keeps tigers in, it seems like exactly the same way. So, uh, this guy's whole mission in life was just to get her, um, he had videos of him like shooting with guns, like cardboard cutouts of her and 
all kinds of videos of him murdering her. So uh, that's what actually landed him in jail. He's in jail for 20 years now, and he's like 54, so he'll probably die there. But uh, uh, the whole Carol Baskin thing. Uh, uh, I, I, did, I sh- did I show you that I texted someone who had a number right next to mine, and I'm like, uh, what do you think oh, of this yeah. Carol Baskin? <laughs> <laughs> I, you just showed me that, your, your number neighbor. And they, they sent me a Tiger King meme, so I don't know what the reach of the show is, but considering I texted one person who was just right next to me, I think everyone's seen it. I mean, it seems, like, pretty expansive. I remember, and it's it's kind of reflective of the stuff I'm seeing about it as well, like, people like uh, Donald Trump Jr., like, walking away from the show, like, <laughs> watching it in hibernation and, like, being like, oh, I didn't know how cheap it was to get a tiger, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's disgusting that that's what your takeaway is. And Also, really disgusting that a member of the press asked him if he is going to do anything about it, if yes, he's going to try to exonerate him, and Trump's like, uh, can you even ask me to do that? No, I, I can't. I don't know. I, I mean, that doesn't that should that doesn't entirely shock me that the the White House media press is asking stupid asinine questions like that about this bullshit that doesn't matter while we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. But yeah, that's why it's, it's worse. I think it's still so so frustrating. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's already bad enough going on here. But also, it wouldn't surprise me if Trump fucking uh, <laughs> you, you know um, gave the guy he's, a pass. <laughs> he said he'd look into it because. He says that Junior for everything. He says yeah. that for everything. I'll look into it. That's his way of brushing shit off. I don't know. It doesn't that's mean his, anything, but... That's his no. I mean, you're as a leader, you're just looking for the right yes, and that's that's just a hard no. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's not important to dive into. It's just, I guess it's a, it's a tiny example of how, not only wide-reaching, but again, like how <laughs> ex- exploitative and, you know, how, such the show is. Do you think it's going to end up in any kind of way on your end-of-year documentary list? I think I have to put it on just by virtue of it being the most popular documentary of all time, but I'll probably slide it into the bottom there. I don't need to lead with Tiger King as long as it's there. Yeah, and just talk about it, I guess, a little bit. It, it doesn't sound like it's the most popular of all time necessarily because it's the best. It does not sound like that's the case. Just that yeah, it's just... Cut. Well, it's and situation, you, too. Like, this came out like a week into everyone's quarantine. Exactly. Otherwise, this would have just been a blip on the radar. So I don't want right. to overblow it as this earned its popularity or something. Well, and it, and it caught, like, wildfire. Like, once it got that small spark, it just took off everywhere. And, like, everyone started latching onto it and, and capitalizing on it more and more. And the immediate availability of it, of course, helped that as well. So I, I'm just happy that my number neighbor knew that Carol Baskins did it. And uh, I'm thinking about sending them more memes today. <laughs> It'd be funny. It's, like, what if they just didn't know what the fuck you were talking about? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, they could have just Googled it, but but I have a good feeling. Uh, they they replied right away with Carol Bastons did it with a meme. So yeah, I, if, it, if it was someone like me, I probably would just block the number. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? I I don't know. I I might I might keep texting my number neighbor. We'll see how things go. How this relationship develops. T- I'll update t- later. Yeah, tell me about it next week. <laughs> Um, we had two. Re- we have very few releases, but uh, considering we have so few, we had two from Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg, this week, Vivarium and Resistance. I'm I'm glad at least that we're still each week finding some new film to talk about and highlight. So it's worthwhile. It's good that it's not an entirely dead zone right now in the midst of the quarantine. But two Eisenbergs. I mean, like one is already surprising enough, but two that's like way more than you'd expect <laughs> in the middle of this. <laughs> I guess he was busy um, last think, year. I think you read both of my reviews here, but um, I did. the 
Okay, so uh, Vivarium, that's the one with Imogen Poots. It feels like a resume movie. Like, they just made it so they, they have uh, money from Denmark and, like, five other countries. So it feels like a bunch of people funding a career launching. So it's an investment, and uh, the movie itself has, like, a 20 minutes that's really good, like a Twilight Zone, and the rest of it could all be cut, um, which is pretty damning, I think. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunate here because the, the idea, like you said, did sound very Twilight zone and intriguing in that way. But if it doesn't it's have so much, frustrating, yeah, <laughs> it it never gets bad. It never even gets like middling. It's always pretty good, and it's just like they had an idea, but the idea is a twenty minute idea. Yeah, that's a, a shame when that happens. Uh, can you explain to me the title at all? Because that's one thing I always fixate on these things. Like I have, I have no idea what that title means. Um, vivarium would be like an enclosure where you go to study life. Um, Okay. I, I, I guess I know because, like, my wife works, like, at a, a biopharmaceutical, so I always ask about their rat vivarium. I've been trying to, like, get in for a tour for three years. Okay. So, I, I see. Uh, so, yeah, it is a word. I'm just ignorant is what you're telling me. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not It's not often used, like, for humans, though. Like, that's that's not something that happens. So I see the confusion. Like, is it, well, are, are they keeping rats? Or? I, guess, I guess that's part of the... Uh, indication then that they're being like like studied like animals then or something going on there I guess is the the idea behind the title but I, I think your general audience won't won't take that title and understand it, it sounds like too sci-fi and made up even though it's real <laughs> word I guess it, it's very close to like that that Marvel metal like vibranium that's, that's what I thought of when I first like, <laughs> yeah. just glanced over the title fake words and um I, I kind of like Imogen Poots in it, especially. The the young boy's kind of strange. They they get lost in a community, and then they have to stay there forever. Uh, they get delivered a young boy, and they, they're told that you could leave if you raise him to adulthood. But he turns into, like, an alien creature, and he's very strange. Hmm. It sounds interesting, but I can definitely see where it's, it's more Twilight zone than it is feature-length. Uh, the punchline happens like like I said, twenty minutes in, and then there's nothing. You know, you know where it's going to go. It doesn't really matter what happens after that. Um, oh. yeah, it's a shame. Do you but... like Jesse Eisenberg? Sort of. I haven't seen like some of his some of his bigger bigger ones. I often, I do see where he's hit or miss. I've all, I've liked him in comedies. I enjoy some comedies okay. with him, but he, he's definitely not like top of my list for anything. I heard him in Imogen Poots in um, some interviews, and she was completely shocked and kind of put off the... <laughs> he, he said he never watches the films he's in, so she's like, uh, you never watch Art of Self-Defense that we were in together last year? And uh, it's he, he always seems so weird to me in interviews, like very particularly strange and quirky in a, in a really force-affected way. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not the first actor to just completely forego seeing his films. Lots of them do that. It's you know. weird in Resistance because he has to play Marcel Marceau, which is, uh, you know, a French mime who's very inspired by Chaplin. So I went and watched some Chaplin just to get ready for that review, too, and kind of get myself back in that mind space. But uh, there's it's it's such a weird movie because it really is about the Resistance and not Marcel Marceau, which is like he, he helped free like 10,000 orphans from uh, Jewish internment camps. And he was such an entertainment in a time of need. Um, why wouldn't you just make it about him? I guess because they want to tell a story about the resistance. That's what the the title indicates. Is he like a big facet of the film, or is he just what like you latched onto and you're like, oh, I think this is way more interesting. 
I mean, he's like on the, he's the only thing on the cover, right? Like he's the only thing in the trailers. It's, uh, it is our Marcel Marceau story, but it'll do anything it can to get away from him. It just wants to escape. It's most interesting part. Yeah. Like, I, look, I look at the poster now. It's like him, uh, like, like, you know, kind of st- standing, like, like running through the, the center of the frame. He got some Nazi flags in the background and such. I went yeah, and watched Marcel Marceau on, like, the Solvin show and all these old talk shows, and he is... I, Eisenberg just can't do it. He doesn't have the personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Watching Mime, anyway, is pretty boring to me, so I don't know if they just thought that doesn't work anymore in 2020. It's not the same as, like, watching Chaplin? I think Chaplin's just so much better well, and more developed. Well, of course. I mean, hey, I gotta ask: When are we gonna talk about Chaplin on the podcast? We've—I don't think we've talked about a silent film yet, and I'm—I'm I'm super pumped to do that eventually. Uh, we'll we'll do that, but it'll also be a silent podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, some sometime too, but of course we we love Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd here and all of them. And, uh, yeah, we gotta do it. When's our safe, safety last podcast? That's what I, I would, want to do. I would totally do that. All right, that's that's one in the we'll, future. We're, we're saying we'll it now. That out. Committing. Uh, so, you know what else? We're never going to podcasts. Hmm. Trolls World Tour. Hmm. Is this is this a new Trolls movie? Yeah, um, it's the first movie of all time to. Uh, Go out of the theater and uh, come out only on digital. It had theater plans and it just issued them completely, and uh, now it's for sale on digital. Which, which the National Theater Board said they do not approve of, and they're going to remember when they come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know if anyone was exactly clamoring to see trolls in the theater to begin with, so it's probably what, a better move. You're a little bit younger. What's your experience with trolls in general? Uh. Very little. Like, I, I have a very, like, cursory knowledge of them. You know, I, I remember them. They definitely don't look anything like these these animated ones. They're, no. they're, they're much more signaturely, like, ugly, and they really lean into that. They've cleaned up the look of the trolls too much here. Much more cartoony uh, looking, and, you know, they, they definitely look like they're appealing more to children instead of, like, embracing the ugliness of trolls that the dolls did <laughs> super well. They're, they're just supposed to be ugly with, like, a big belly button and pink or fluorescent hair oh 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 i remember there's a there's a trolls joke in one of the in the guardians of the galaxy movie where where star lord replaces like the gem or whatever with a troll doll (laughs) yeah yeah i remember that yep um they they were just like i don't i feel like for your generation they must have like gone away for a while and it only came back like as a movie and show or something i it would be like if they made a cabbage pants patch yeah. the kids movie like i'm like oh i know what that is but like I, I never really had anything to do with it myself um there's i, I googled it and there was a big donald trump troll doll which is distracting me now uh, i have to close all my yeah. windows okay <laughs> time, time oh, to reset your my, computer <laughs> i just need to wipe the whole thing now it's dirty <laughs> uh i uh, did you see the original movie Oh yeah, I was so excited to go see. No, of course I didn't. Okay, um, so it's Justin Timberlake, and you know the song though. Uh, what is it? I got a feeling. Uh yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, so that came out of that, and it was an Oscar-nominated movie. Um, ugh, I ugh. I have a feeling Oscars won't accept this because it skipped theaters entirely. But if they do, there's not going to be many more releases. So I could see this being a best animation picture. 
We'll see. Uh, well, you got Onward still out already. Like, that already happened, yeah. so... It's not winning, right? This was this was not as good as Onward, at least, right? Yeah, if they want to recognize Pixar's worst box office movie. Although, I feel like that's been saved that's... by Disney+. Plus. It's a huge deal, Onward, now. I don't think it's exactly fair to label it as their worst box office movie, because it came at the worst box office time in probably history. <laughs> it Onward had the worst possible timing, and I think it did as well or a little bit worse than, like, Good Dinosaur. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably Which... probably deserved better than that, but I don't know how much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I it has, like, I'm on a lot of Disney groups now to to share some of our work and it's really having a second life on disney plus people love onward now that's which it's good yeah it's good that it got some legs oh jesus (laughs) (laughs) if only it had a spine Uh, (laughs) i i don't know i haven't even given like a verdict on trolls world tour (laughs) no no you kind of danced around it uh uh, there's like 39 songs in about 94 minutes, so it's constant just clips and choruses of songs. They never get to their verses. It's a, a very underdeveloped story. I mean, it's the same story as The Last Trolls. I don't know why people want to pay 20 bucks. Is, did you have to pay 20 bucks for this? Yeah, it's... I mean, oh. if you split it with... You know, if you split it with your wife or something and you have a kid and you go watch it four times in like two days, I did watch it four times. Um, Oof. Uh, I mean, it, it was on the background this week. I'd say I wouldn't say I say I watched it with intention once, and then it was kind of on. I, I guess you got some good use out of it then for it being like a distraction yeah. for your kid. But like, I can't imagine like wanting to to pay money to see it. Like at, the, at least if you had gone out to the theater to see it, you're going out to to sit in the theater chair and take in the atmosphere a bit at home. It's just it's depressing. I think my. Yeah, my most damning. Well, ten bucks each isn't so bad to take a kid out and or have right, a right. have a night with a kid if you're going to watch it twice. Um, there's a well, the movie The Rock Trolls are very angry, so Ezra doesn't like them, and she keeps saying rock music is angry. And I I've spent so much time trying to get her into rock and roll that it's very disturbing to me that this anti rock and roll agenda has got to go. Well, uh, I don't think Trolls was the way to indoctrinate her, if that was the case. Probably not the best uh, example of it. You gotta throw on, like, a Bob Dylan documentary or something. <laughs> I asked her the second day, I'm like, uh, which Trolls do you want to watch? She's like, uh, not the angry Trolls. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you, that's this movie. Um, it has some great jokes, though. Uh, uh, so what happens is there's uh, they realize that there's more than just pop Trolls, and there's rock Trolls, and jazz Trolls, and... Uh, techno trolls that they go explore all their lands and it's so exhausting it has every kind of music in it it's trying to appeal everyone appeal to everyone i don't know how it could win over anyone though with with a title like world tour it definitely seems more rock centric i can't imagine that the jazz trolls play much of a big part in the film there's a hilarious bit where a saxophone jazz troll comes on and he's um or maybe it's classical is the broader genre there. And then he plays his sax and they go into like a trippy drug sequence where they're turned into sushi rolls and they're sitting on a beach and there's like a human foot delivering them, you know, tropical drinks. And it's, uh, there's horses flying at the screen and Norwals, uh, crashing into the water. It's hilarious. Are, are you sure someone didn't slip something into your drink before watching the movie? That sounds, uh, insane and bizarre and, all over the place 
Yeah, uh, I think it's just a total mess in general, and um, no real reason to go see or uh, stay home and see Trolls. Uh, you can buy it for less than two months, which is kind of my answer for all of these. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's uh, unfortunate, but... Uh, but I- <laughs> let's watch it the next few weeks. If it does exceptionally well, this may change everything for kids' movies, so let's see what it does. That's true, it might, and then maybe that'll keep kids out of the theaters when we- they finally come back. <laughs> Thank God. I mean, oh no, that would be horrible. <laughs> well, uh, let's turn to our uh, topic for this week, our, our next streaming title to recommend to people. Uh, we came back around to the Criterion channel because they just uh, gave us a whole host of new great content here for their one-year anniversary. They've been up for running for a year now. And uh, I, I had to make you watch this, this Western. This is our Western pick for the month. It's a very underrecognized one. I we were watching the Red Sun, which is a very easy sell for me, um, especially the people involved. And um, we have Terrence Young, who's primarily a Bond director, known for From Russia with Love, Doctor No, uh, some of the key ones, and Thunderball. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, the big appeal of it is is the starring roles here. We've got a uh, a great cast, an embodiment of so many genres. I think that it's it's the fascinating thing because Red Sun is this is this rare convergence of you know the, the iconic western stars the spaghetti styles and then you bring in the influence of the the samurai pictures with the the samurai himself Toshiro Mifune and you pit him against Charles Bronson who's just coming off of Once Upon a Time in the West just a couple years prior and if that's not enough you throw in Elaine Delon star of great French capers uh by Melville and of course, uh, the original Bond girl, Ursula Andress, plays a romantic interest in the film as well. It's just really great, like, worlds, you know, spanning, uh, you know, uh, gathering of people in this in this universal genre. I feel like it really exemplifies how the genre appeals to so many different cultural identities. I hadn't even thought of the connection there with Ursula and Terrence on the first Bond film, but it is nice that he's able to bring her back for something. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's this really rare concoction of all these different elements that probably shouldn't work, but somehow they no. do. And it works in this this kind of fantastical mixing pot of all of the things you love. Like, that, that's how I came across it, is I think I was flipping through Tosuru Mifune's IMDb page one day, and I saw this title that was very clearly on the poster, a Western with Charles Bronson. I'm like, I gotta see that no, no matter what. That sounds like the most awesome thing ever. And it turns out it was. It starts like it's definitely not going to be, though. Like, no, no, the, it's... The, the train sequence at the beginning, um, you usually watch on the Japanese version. You you say there's a small yeah, difference. In the I, uh, so after uh, watching the film for the first time, I, I end up finding the only Blu-ray available for it is a Japanese Studio Canal release, and uh, fortunately the same region, so I could just pop it in. But uh, the opening crawl is, of course, in Japanese in that version. <laughs> And so I'm it's... like, I have no idea what this is, but it, it hardly matters. It's basically, and you'll see on the Criterion channel in English there, it's just, it's it's basically telling the, the Japanese audience, I feel, or the European audience, like, what it what the, the status of the world was at the time in the, the late 1800s and how Japan figured in at the same time and the kind of coming together of the worlds were all getting closer and closer. And so why such a bizarre occurrence like a samurai in the West would be viable. And just the idea of sending a samurai sword that needs to be uh, 
um, what is it? It's delivered to the president, but then yeah. it's taken by Delon, which is such a it's such a funny farcical idea to begin with because the idea that they have this sword and um, Mifune will have to stab himself and uh, Bronson. What do they call it? Belly stabbing? What, yeah, well, what's this well, word for it? Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's uh, how Bronson refers to the the act of uh, Harakiri or seppuku, as they establish uh, in the beginning of the film. Throughout that, you know, the the honorable suicide that the samurai will have to take after a week is the the time period that they give for that. For some reason, it's not it's not really clear as to if that's a an actual like traditional thing or if they just made up the ticking clock for the film there. But they do it with. It's the, good because it yeah. gives them a reason to work together. That's in the context there. So. Right, so so it works, uh, and maybe a tiny bit contrived, but it's not that bad. It it works for what it goes there. But like, I, I do agree with you in the fact that the film is a little clunky in the beginning. Uh, yeah, you know, it starts off with this kind of slowly paced uh, robbery scene on the train, which is pretty good. It's got some action stuff in it, but because it starts off like that, the character. Uh, fleshing like the establishment of the characters is very weak in the beginning you don't have a good grip of who the people are you know why they're like they're working together because like you said delon takes the sword but it was him and bronson working together in the beginning and then he totally yeah. like, backstabs bronson and yeah it you, doesn't make sense well and you don't get the sense of betrayal because you don't know how well established their relationship is it, it gets much better as the film goes on and you get a lot better interactions with it and i, I kind of told you up front i'm like Stick with the film. It's a little rocky in the beginning, but it gets way better as it goes along. I think it's just very confusing. Like it's, it can be a hard sell at first, um, despite everything it has going for it with the people involved. I think it's unclear: is it Euro Western or Spaghetti Western? It has like a French, Italian, Spanish money in it, and then it's shot. Uh, where would you say? What did in, you say it was shot in? It's in Spain, like most Spaghetti Spain. Westerns were shot. Uh, and so that's kind of the other interesting thing we, we wrestled with throughout the, watching the film together as well. It's like, uh, where are they? Because they, yeah. they cover a lot of ground. And it's because it's shot in Spain, you can't really identify a particular sect of America that it's in. It's like, well, they probably are in California because that's where the, the the Japanese would have come in from and, and gotten off and make their start the train trip over. Uh, but... You know, by the end, we're seeing some more Mexican-style architecture, so maybe they're close yeah. to the border, but they also hit a range of snowy mountains at one point as well, and that's more like Colorado territory. It's like, eh, I mean, I, I don't think they would be able to cover that much ground in a single week, but you, no, you, you uh, roll with it, because I think the whole film is, like, semi-fantastical. Like, it's it's not immediately like, yeah, this is really what the West was like. I mean, you got a samurai and a cowboy working together. It's going to be a little bit more you know, uh, uh, less realistic. <laughs> I think it's mostly like a Euro-Western in some way that it, it pulls those things together and it's mostly a parody of doing a Western anyway. Well, um, and that's the thing, it's, it's definitely way more, like there's so much influence from many different cultures that it's it's very unique in that way. It's it's very difficult to pin down because it is, it's got the French influence and the British influence and the Italian influence and the American influence and the Japanese influence. It's all there in it. You can see it in very many different aspects and I think it represents them all uh, pretty balancedly, really. I think so. Um, I think it everything grows on me in it. I was not sure about Bronson at first. Um, I thought he would be way overshadowed by Delon and Mifune. Right. Well, I think you, you have a, 
more immediate appreciation for both of them and their kind of iconic roles with uh, both, you know, Melville supporting Delon and Kurosawa, of course, making yeah. you know, <laughs> such an iconic character out of Mifune. Uh, but think, and I think it's just confusing, too, because the year prior... Uh, Delon was in the Red Circle, and now he's in the Red Sun, and I don't know what that meant to Americans, but the French ate it up, um, so uh, at least it found an audience somewhere. Mm-hmm, and uh, I agree with you, certainly off the bat, Bronson comes off a little weaker, because unlike Delon and uh, Mifune, who are playing these more stoic and immediately cool and reserved characters, he's like a total buffoon, uh, and yeah. he's playing a comic foil to them, but... It actually ends up being a really major strength of the film because off the bat, you're kind of concerned about how they're going to handle the the cultural depiction here, the Japanese, especially because immediately they're aggressive <laughs> towards them and they're they're dismissive and, and a little rude to their culture. That what they say something about, you know. Uh, they say you're wearing like a woman's dress and yeah. it's like their samurai kimono and, 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 and like, it's like goddamn. Uh, and it's like yeah, of course that's the kind of thing a cowboy would say to you know diminish them but in the frame of the film it doesn't come off super great there but it becomes very clear very quickly that the sympathies are clearly with the the japanese um tradition and uh culture uh there and the buffoon really is uh the american in this case and he's shown as being much more inept and incapable uh compared to the samurai that he's partnered with throughout the film Though eventually they make great partners, and they're good comedic partners. Uh, Bronson's right. surprisingly funny and good here. That's the, that's the thing, really, is that uh, the film is not so self-serious. You know, it's very aware of the kind of inherent goofiness uh, of it, and so it really leans into that, and it becomes more of a adventurous romp um, with a lot of great action and stuff still. And the, that clash of culture is really where the the strength of the film comes from and it develops that more and more as the film goes on as they as they kind of interpret each other's different sensibilities and they play off of that and they work their strengths together to uh you know get the sword back and you know create a good bond that really um is a great dynamic between both bronson and mifune I think the I just think the train beginning doesn't really work this time. I love a train in a western, but I mean it's not greatly developed where it's going, or uh, it doesn't have like a real sense of place anyway. So uh, I think it kind of drops the ball in the beginning, but then quickly once we're off the train and we're on more of a buddy journey through the west, I think it becomes a lot funnier and a lot better. Yeah, it certainly does. And again, because they do. Uh present Mifune as such a more you know capable and stoic character who who can keep Bronson in line no matter how he tries to wiggle his way out of the responsibility of uh, escorting him to find Delon. It's great uh, watching him come to have mutual respect for him as he finds out that he was uh, you know capable of English and that he knows his way around and that he's going to be a good advocate and a teammate in getting this back. Yeah it's a Again, really uh, wonderful dynamic, and they both have, I think, that good comic sensibility. Uh, you know, Bronson obviously more the fool throughout, and he plays the the chum really well. But Mifune is able to to get off like quips and one liners in a in a really convincing way. That's a uh, very fun, and it's obvious that he has a comedic sensibility that perhaps you didn't see uh, as much in his more uh, traditional roles. I suppose it's probably on Criterion for his 100th birthday thing, so it's good that we're getting to it as well. Yeah, and this one is a film I have been aware of for a while, and I told you 
I, I think it was, it was one of the films when we first got together to do a podcast. We, uh, we ended up doing Notorious instead, but I, I was like saying we should totally watch this one because I own it and you're not going to find it otherwise. It's going to be really yeah. hard and it's great. And so I was so elated when I saw it was coming to the channel. I'm like, we have to do this. It's great. Nobody knows about this really cool Western that brings together, you know, cowboys and samurais in this interesting and unique way. And I need to t- t- tell the world about it. <laughs> and it's good because there isn't much American appreciation uh, historically for this movie at all. So um, there's something to getting movies like this out there to a new audience. Uh, and there's definitely a new audience for them. Yeah, and I was I was so glad to see that you were enjoying it as it went along because I was aware that the more kind of comedic and you know uh, poking you know fun uh, nature of the film could be kind of uh, off putting or not like necessarily what you want out of this kind of western. It's not like this epic coming together of giants like you might think. It's it's a lot more lighthearted, but still very much representative of, of that. Like getting these two titans of their respective genres together. Uh, it's it's very fun and unique in that. You're not going to get that anywhere else. Any other time you're going to put a samurai in the Western setting, you're not going to get the icon of Toshiro Mifune. So I think for that, at least alone, this is really unique and great. And the fact that it's also a good and fun movie is just even better. And I think that's what throws you at the start in the very end, where it looks like it's going to be, um, what as the windmills, it feels like you're just walking into Once Upon a Time in the West. Like, it's going to be an epic. And then uh, once you kind of settle into what the film actually is and its actual unique identity, I think it's a lot better off. Yeah, well, especially because, uh, you know, Bronson is not stoic like he is as Harmonica in that film. He's he's very much a kind of fool here, uh, a little bit bumbling. Uh, yeah, it's uh, once he's rolling off uh, at the end, it feels like he's just going to pull out a harmonica. <laughs> right. Well, because that, especially because not only do you have the opening with the train, but that set with the windmill and the water tower, yeah. just in the middle it, of the desert, nothing else around, looks exactly like it. Like they are clearly trying to evoke that imagery and make you think back to Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't really tell what it's trying to tell me. Like this happens before that movie, and then he's walking into that set at the end. I don't know what it means. I don't know how they get the sword up there either. Yeah, that's the weird thing. It ends on that shot of the sword hanging from like the the wire, and it's like, uh, how did you reach that? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's just like a fun thing. Again, like I take the the stuff like that like not not too seriously because it is so much more like lighthearted and fun, and it's not taking it too seriously. And that's really this great strength of the film. But at the same time, it does still, it says a reverence for the characters and the cultures that everyone comes from here, and it presents them in a very respectful and uh, representative light. Uh, And so it's this great marriage of those two qualities that it never falls into, like, a parodic territory, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, too, because I don't know as much... um for Delon, actually, but uh, at least for Mifune, I feel like the like the the blades of long cane sugar at the end really represents something like the opening of Yojimba. So to have that paired with uh, Bronson's Once Upon a Time in the West, I think uh, pays homage to you know their largest screen presences that they both have. Yeah, in an interesting way back to back. The finale, I think, is this really great cap on the film, not only because it's this really great showdown in, like, a burning field, which is super cool and uh, unique, but also because, like you said, that imagery is more evocative of it. There's this very clear juxtaposition of the uh, 
the kind of the late '60s, uh, you know, Mexican Revolution setting with the the church building there it makes you kind of think of the Wild Bunch in some ways. To immediately to like the the grassy fields there, where the uh, the Indians that are attacking them are obviously a little bit more out of the element because you're you're not dealing with the flat, you know, desert plains of the West that you know. It's definitely more Eastern seeming with the tall grass and being able to kind of hide and and. Uh, move around in, in combat like that in a way that you don't see in western films as much that's where you get a lot more cool sword play action which the film does do a really great balance of of gunfights and sword play like it's not <laughs> it doesn't like the the samurai is not outshined like you might fear it would be in a world of rifles and pistols i like I, some of my favorite moments are just when they sit together and they're looking at each other's sword and gun <laughs> you know they're like uh, which one now mm-hmm and, and uh, again, yeah, you don't you don't sense that Mifune is outmatched really, despite his uh, less efficient weaponry. I guess you know again they they do a really great job of exhibiting the the skills uh, of the samurai there and how he's able to hold his own. I just love the idea of a samurai in the grass. It, it is such a technical advantage, and and the natives have uh, no tactical interest at all because they just keep circling that building, and getting shot out of the gun holes. So yeah. I wasn't surprised that they took on that battle too. I guess if anyone uh, doesn't get a good rap here, it's the the Native Americans, unsurprisingly. Not at all. Yeah, but you know, g- good for the Japanese that they they at least come off a little bit better than the Native Americans would. And that's the thing I think that's really risky with something like this is that especially if you take just a single Japanese character and put him in the Western setting here, you could really risk that going badly and misrepresenting and like overshadowing them. But because you have someone not only as great as Mifune, but the material really suits and complements him in the foreign land there i think it does a magnificent job of highlighting his his greatness and again the uh the influence of the samurai genre on the kind of spaghetti westerns that this is clearly uh descended from and um we see that uh right afterward we have corbucci doing a kind of parody of this so uh in some way it started one of the great spaghetti western careers we ever got so uh it is a interesting movie yeah uh, and I think it's definitely overlooked, uh, for sure, within the, the Western pantheon there, uh, you know, and some might be dismissive of it because it is a little bit more lighthearted, not as, uh, like, richly thematic, though I do find there is, there's a great dialogue there between all the cultures and everything going on, uh, which you don't see as much in any others. It's very unique uh, and uh, for what it is, and, and so much fun. I, I have a blast with it all the time. Um, I just wanted to say that Elaine Delon is the most beautiful man that ever existed. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry he didn't get uh, as media role here as you might have hoped. I know your uh, perception of all the characters in the film were constantly changing. Like you said, you, you had Bronson yeah. kind of like pegged as the lowest of the three in the beginning, but by the end you felt he kind of climbed his way up and Delon made an immediate impact, but as he kind of faded into the background of the film and it was clear that the the sketching of his character was super thin and he was mostly, you know, getting by on his, you know, natural charisma and such, that he kind of faded to the bottom of the list, but he still manages to stand out. And I think the thing we said as well is that if it was like anyone else other than Elaine Delon, the antagonist role would have kind of really sucked. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Elaine Delon kind of, like, ties it together in a way. Like, it's really interesting to me that he would... Of course, he has, like, the lay samurai film, so he always already has, like, a Western samurai film that, of course, like, influenced Once Upon a Time in the West opening. And then we have uh, Mifune from, like, the Kurosawa school representing something. It's very circular. Um, 
and very cohesively attached, I feel, to a, a phrase and and a period in a phase and period in the '60s that uh, yeah. is kind of important for all three actors. Certainly, I mean, all, during that time period, all three of them played this uh, this descendant of the kind of Western archetypical, um, you know, wandering warrior of their respective uh, areas. Of course, you know, Bronson playing a, a spaghetti descendant in, in ways and also in some American films. Like, he's a, he was a member of the Magnificent Seven, which itself was a remake of Seven Samurai, which Toshiro Mifune was in. So there's even more yeah. cool connectivity there. And then, of course... I mean, just yeah. like the the string between uh, Mifu- or, uh, sorry, uh, between Melville and Kurosawa and Leone is very, very small. So I feel like the overlap there is... I don't know, it's really tight and tidy. It, it seems like it would be messy, but it would have to be anyone else to be a mess. Right, well, and that's the, that's the thing as well, is that it's, it's hard to imagine this working just in general, uh, but not only getting all of these significant talents who are very capable here on their own right, but also just the the history they bring with them and how kind of effortlessly uh, everything is strung together. You would not think with all of these cultural elements mixing together it would work as well as it does, but it, it really does. It, it works, and I think it's because they don't take everything too seriously. They're aware of the kind of the silliness that is inherent with bringing all these together, and they, they manage to marry yeah. it in a very uh, kind of spirited way that I don't think, I don't even think it's a, I don't even think it's a bad moment for Delon. I think that he gets to no. have a little bit of fun and he's just so effortlessly cool anyway. And right. It's not uh, so beautiful and gorgeous. It's not him. That's the problem. He's fantastic. It's like they, <laughs> they needed to give him more character in the writing. He doesn't have a lot. I, I will say like probably the weakest element is like the, the dialogue is not always great. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. it's a little weak, but generally it's pretty good. Like the spirit is still there, the timing of jokes is still good. You know, you get good laughs out and everything. But it's it's a lot more of what's going on in the frame that's better than the the dialogue itself. Uh, it's probably especially, the weakest component, especially his because he doesn't get a lot of characters he gets to live with in the story. So of course he has. Um, well, he has some in the beginning, but then Delon, you know, like his whole characteristic is his gold tooth and like his cool yeah. style with like oh, the thing he, around his neck. And he's swinging the watch the whole time. Like the, he's got this yeah. pocket watch he's swinging and he does it like a couple times throughout. Like that's supposed to be a character trait. And it's like, it's it's, so, it's, <laughs> it's pretty forced. It's not like a natural thing. Like it looks like they're trying to evoke like a Scarface thing, but it, it just, it's so oh, yeah. silly. It's, it's very silly. <laughs> so my, I guess my pull from that was that because it's Terrence Young, I like to... I want to view him as a James Bond villain now. Yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of how it works. Like, I think you can see the kind of Bond esque uh, influence here as well. It does have, again have that adventurous spirit and everything, and um, you know, I think it works really well. While obviously being uh, different, it's again, I just think it's this this fascinating convergence of everyone here, uh, you know, coming together to make this really unique and uh, culturally diverse uh, Western. Well, I, I'm really glad we got to it. Thanks for introducing me. It's the one time you'll ever be able to show me like a good spaghetti western that I don't know about. So yeah, I'm yeah. About it. It's it's like spaghetti adjacent, like not quite, but it's all it's got like kind of all the influence elements there and everything going on. And I agree, uh, you probably have seen all the other spaghetti westerns I would otherwise recommend. So yeah, it's it's like a Euro western that was like kind of marinated in some marinara for a while. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's all sorts of things, and I think uh, one of the major reasons why it's worth checking out, and we wanted to highlight it this week for our, our streamable classic, I guess, uh, is that what we're calling them? 
I guess that'll that'll work, yeah. Criterion well, Classic this th- week. That's our know. western for for this month, and I was I was so excited to get to this one, and I'm so glad that you end up enjoying it. And I hope others enjoy it uh, after hearing us talk about it. Yeah, um, go check out our new podcast, Daydream Cast. We had um, our friend Pablo's on last week, so uh, check out that episode as well. Yeah, and uh, stay tuned again. Next week we'll be back with uh, another exciting streaming classic for you while we're all stuck indoors. Awesome. Thanks, man.